Lord, how we thank you. Lord, uh, many of us would never have made it without you. We're here to, today because that's our testimony. And I pray these young ones would, would learn as they grow in you that, that you are there. You're their strength. You're their life. I pray for them and friends of Jesus, Lord. Instruct them. Give them a great experience this morning of learning more and more about you and who you are, who they are in you. And, Lord, you use uh, this message, Lord, to, use, to, to sanctify us who remain here in the sanctuary. May, may we draw closer to you and, and, and understand more what it means to be your people, to be disciples of Jesus, disciples of the King. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. you in the name of Christ this uh, Lord's Day morning very cool morning you're all here to uh, to worship God as we do each each Sunday and if you're a visitor or new to faith we welcome you in the name of Christ and we're in, a, we're in the second week of a, of a, of a sermon series uh, called the King and the Kingdom our theme this year is church health church health what are we a healthy church? what does a healthy church look like we go to the scriptures for that and we're looking this this season at uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We're walking through some of the passages in Matthew, which encourage us to make disciples. And, 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 and we began last week, Pastor Craig opened up this, the first uh, part of the book, which, uh, which shows us that Jesus Christ is king. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. Uh, but the book moves on towards the Great Commission in chapter 28. He, this king is king of all of the nations, all, all the earth, and he invites us to go and make disciples of all nations because he indeed is the Lord and king of all people. He's the creator of all people and Lord and King over all. And people need to know that. The King and the Kingdom. So Matthew shows us King Jesus and um, his royal credentials in chapter 1 and his mandate to, to take the earth in chapter 28. We want to look at this King and his, and his calling to build a community, a community of kingdom people, a community that includes Jews and Gentiles, a community that includes outsiders and insiders. All the people who trust him as Lord and Savior and King. People like you, people like me, who find their identity in him, ultimately. January means Christmas is over, though we still have mangers, that's wonderful. Christmas is, is behind us a few weeks, and it means also a start of, of, a, uh, uh, of, of the real football season. The playoffs have begun, I think, yesterday, and, and there's no joy in Baltimore or in D.C. this year because none of our teams made it. We all got left outside the party this year, oh well. It's always next year, right? You know, sports fans root hard for their team, and, and they become identified with their team so much that when their team wins, they say, we won, as if you played the game. You say, we won. One thing that I believe attracts people to, to sports is the finality of winning and losing. The finality of winning and losing. We have a sense that in the universe, that's the way it works. There is contrast. There's contrasting outcomes. There, there, there's, there's God and there's Satan. There, there's heaven and there's hell. There are those who believe and those who do not believe. The universe is made up that way. And, and believe it or not, sports reminds us of that. Someone, when the buzzer sounds, wins and someone loses. Except occasionally there's a tie, isn't there? But whatever. Followers of Jesus, though, are part of a more important team. We're part of this kingdom of God that, that Jesus is building. And the essence of our identity shouldn't be in those sports teams, but in the team that God is building, the kingdom of God 
And we sing a song, I am yours and you are mine. I know who I am. The good news of the gospel is we are identified with the one who is victorious. And we share in his victory. We share in that victory. And that, that, that's, we see this profoundly in our passage this morning. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. The ESV translation is on the overhead uh, screen here. And um, these 11 verses, beginning of the chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <clears throat> and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear up bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God's word. <clears throat> My title is simple. Get back, Satan. Get back, Satan. The, the victory of, of Jesus over Satan, because of that victory, we are victorious in the face of the traditions that we face. We are victorious because he's victorious. And his victory models how we can, in our experience, become uh, victors. We're weak. We're frail. We're insecure. We're vulnerable people, aren't we? We're tempted to trust all kinds of, of things before trusting God. We're tempted to do what Satan wants us to do, which is to simply doubt God and doubt God's word. But Jesus is victorious over the tempter. And in his victory, we also see the keys to our coming, overcoming him in the battles we face. Last week, Pastor Craig started off uh, with a look at the genealogy, this, the, the genealogy of the king, this cast of outsiders from the Old Testament, from the genealogy, this unlikely lineage of this perfect king, giving hope to us all, unperfect people, imperfect people. We saw the credentials of the king. In chapter 2, uh, Matthew tells us the, the rival of the king is King Herod, this mad King Herod, slays every child two years, every, every son two years and under, uh, in, in that region because he doesn't want this rival king to, to grow and, be, and, and to become his uh, uh, effective. In chapter 3 of Matthew, John comes on seeing John the baptizer, his ministry of, of calling people to confess their sins and, 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 and be committed to God and to wait for the coming Messiah. And then Jesus comes and Jesus himself is baptized under the ministry of, of the forerunner to the king. And then in chapter 4, we have this basic story that before Jesus' ministry begins, something had to happen. He had to go away. He had to go in a preparation time, fasting and, and prayer, alone with God. We encourage you to do that this week as we do our, our, our yearly time of, of prayer and fasting as we get, our, get ourselves ready for this year. But there were three temptations um, that, that came to Jesus uh, from Satan and 
We, want to, we can identify them very simply. First was to turn stones into bread, to, to, to take care of your, your bodily, your physical needs. We can identify with that. The second was to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, satisfy the need of your heart to, to walk by sight rather than walk by faith in God. We can identify with that. And the third was to just simply worship Satan, to instantly get what God was holding back from you. Jesus, you want to have these things now. You don't want to wait till, till later. God's holding back from you, just as uh, uh, we, we can understand, identify with that, satisfying the ego needs of Jesus. We can understand that. There's some underlying themes here that we're not going to go into very deeply, but just want you to, to, to touch on them. One is that Jesus did what Adam failed to do. There's a second Adam theme here with Jesus. Adam should have recognized um, the serpent, the voice, in the serpent, the voice of, of, of Satan, and resisted, but he didn't. But Jesus recognized uh, Satan, and he did. He resisted a Satan. And in fact, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. Just as Adam had a, 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 was, was head over people who followed him and, 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 and imitate him, Jesus is, is a head, head over people who follow him and imitate him. There's also a, 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 a second Israel, a new Israel theme here. Jesus did what Israel failed to do. The, the 40-year wilderness experience of the children of Israel spelled doom and death as God's people failed to believe God. Uh, um, in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, as they looked over the, the, the precipice of the promised land, the giants were in the land, and the giants were just too big and, and, and seemingly insurmountable. We can't lick those giants. Though God said, go into the land, he'll be with them. As a result of their unbelief, they spent 38 extra years in the wilderness, essentially burying an entire generation. It was more than a time of testing. It was 40 years of discipline, of punishment for unbelief, 40 years of defeat. But Jesus, out of his 40 days of testing, he comes forth victorious in his wilderness. Satan is bound, and the Son of Man is now going into Satan's realm to rescue those who've been in bondage to, to Satan all their lives. It's a new Israel theme. But the main theme of this passage, don't miss it, is the victory of Jesus. That's key. First and foremost, his victory over the evil one that begins right here. It, he fulfilled all righteousness. If he were sinful, then his death would have been for himself. But no, he's the spotless lamb of God. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the God-man. At his baptism, you remember when everyone was confessing sins, there was a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's not, he's not here like the others confessing sins. Jesus didn't confess his sins. John knew that, if you remember the encounter there. There, a voice declared his sonship. But now in the wilderness, his sonship was demonstrated as he defeats the evil one who wanted to trip him up. We heard in the scripture reading that Jesus is therefore a sympathetic high priest. He's a high priest in the heavens who understands, who understands, who, who, who's walked this walk and terra firmer in the earth. Uh, uh, so, so Paul could state even in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Because the way of escape is Jesus. It's fixing your eyes on Jesus. 
Alfred Barnes, a commentator, um, talks about the timing of, of the temptations and, and the interesting connection between um, Jesus' temptations and the temptations that we face. Barnes says that Satan's temptations are often the strongest immediately after we've been remarkably favored. Jesus had just been called the Son of God, and Satan took his opportunity to try him. He often attempts to fill us with pride and vain conceit when we've been favored with any peace or any new view of God, and, and he endeavors to urge us to do something which may bring us low and lead us to sin. That's true. That's been the experience of many. Now, <coughs> where are we going? We're going to look at these three temptations. We're going to look at the temptations of Jesus and, and, and try to apply them to our own lives. Uh, um, he was, he, was, he was tempted to not trust the provision of God. He was tempted to not trust the protection of God. He was tempted to not honor the worship of God. And we have the same temptations, the same temptations. First, the victory over Satan, we see his, his, he was tempted to not trust God's provision, the provision of his heavenly Father. You see in, in the text uh, the, the, the challenge of Satan to turn the stones into bread. He needed food, 40 days of, of not eating. And food is very basic, it's universal. We need food, right? Yes, we do. But 40 days without it is a long, 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 long time, isn't it? It would make us weary. Jesus begins his ministry with a time of fasting from food and prayer. Now, during this time, he was tempted in some ways that are similar to us, and we can identify with, but also in some ways that were, that were even different. He was, he was a man with a body. He was the God-man. He was a man with a body. He had bodily appetite. So, so without food, I'm sure he experienced real hunger. I imagine a growling stomach. Unsatisfied taste buds, parched lips, a pain in the gut eventually after 40 days. I've never fasted that long. Don't hope to ever have to do that. But I'm sure there's pain involved in that, that long of a fast. He was a man, but he was also divine. And, and, and it seems that there was the unique ability to turn stones into bread that, that, that was a temptation to him. So in one sense, his hunger was not like ours. When you're hungry, you got to look for food. When he's hungry, he can make something into food. That would be an even stronger, to me, I, I, that would be an even stronger sense of temptation. That through the 40 days, there's that temptation to satisfy that need. In a sense, we can't identify with that. In, in, in Philippians, Paul says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. <clears throat> the commentator says, the tempter's whole object during the 40 days evidently was to get him to distrust the heavenly testimony born to him at his baptism as the Son of God, to persuade him to regard it as but a splendid illusion, and generally to dislodge from his breast the consciousness of his sonship. For 40 days, Satan watched and Satan worked and and Jesus was victorious over that. Like Jesus, we're also called to simply trust our Heavenly Father to provide for us. Last week, we sang, in song, we declared our commitment to the God who provides. My God is more than enough. He can supply all our needs. He is my El Shaddai, God Almighty, who always looks out for me. Jehovah Jireh, he is my God. Why should I worry about the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, when by my faith I know my God is more than enough? And we confess that in song with our lips, but sometimes, you know, we don't totally agree or believe what we confess in song with our lips. And 
And there are reasons why we get discouraged and fail sometimes to, to trust God. Sometimes we see visible evidence of people who seem to trust God, but it's not working for them. And, and maybe that's you. We, we quickly jump, jump to the conclusion that, that something's wrong with God, that God has not been faithful. God may have reasons for withholding his revisions for a season. Scripture is clear about that. Or it may be that we fail to understand that, that God more often answers prayer through using natural means or processes rather than through direct supernatural means or, or miracles. Sometimes um, the answers are very seemingly natural. I don't even like the natural supernatural dichotomy, actually, because it's a false dichotomy in one sense. Everything that happens is, is because God um, is at work in that sense. But the, the, the passage is quoted there by Jesus in response to the temptation. It's in, it's in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. <coughs> our body needs food, and our souls need spiritual food. Our, our grandbaby, Ariel, she cries, and she has a lot, well, all babies cry, of course, but there's several cries she has, but you can kind of discern when the cry is not just a cry because she wants to be held or because she wants to be changed. Or because it, it, there's a hunger cry that she has that if you're around her long enough, you can discern. Oh, yeah, she's hungry. She wants to eat something. You can tell. And I believe that there's a, that there's a, a certain wavelength there's a, that all of our souls have that kind of a cry, that, that, that our souls are hungry and, and, and our souls need to be fed by the Lord. We need that manna. The question is, do we, do we listen to our souls and do we, do, do we feed our souls? Do we put ourselves in, in, in the place where we can come and dine, where we can taste and see, where we can receive the manna that is there for us? The, the second temptation is a temptation to not trust God's protection, not trust the protection of God. Satan encourages Jesus, jump. God will protect you. Jump from this pinnacle, the high point of the temple. God, God will protect you. And he, Satan, watch this, Satan cites the Bible. Psalm 91, Deuteronomy 6, 16. Satan knows the Bible, cites the Bible. Incorrectly, of course, in the wrong context. But that's, he doesn't care about that. There's a difference. Now, what's going on? There, I believe there's a difference between what, what I would call healthy faith and, and, and an unhealthy uh, uh, presumption. And Jesus understands the, the difference, of course. Could God protect Jesus? Well, of course he could if he jumped off the temple pinnacle. So, so, so why didn't Jesus just jump? To show Satan the power of God. Well, Jesus knew that the challenge was not really about God, whether God could protect him. The challenge was about listening to or submitting to the twisted authority and logic of the evil one. That's what's going on here. And Jesus has none of that. He's not going to submit to what Satan wants him to do. In Paul's life, there was, in the end of, I think Acts 28, there's a, a shipwreck scene, and he's shipwrecked on an island, the island of Malta. And as he gets, a snake bites Paul. A viper, it says in the text. And Paul is healed. And Paul goes on. You know, nowhere in the ministry of Paul do we see Paul having um, snakes in his services. Now, why do I say that? Because there's some people who have snakes in their services. As if that's what God wants. 
Paul, Paul was being a good steward of his life and going about, and something happened, and he, he was bitten by a snake, and he needed God to do something, and God did something. And God continues to do that. When we are good stewards of life and walking with God, and, and, and we need, whether it's something that we do that messes things up or just the circumstances of life, if we need a miracle and God wants to do a miracle, God still does miracles. However, never are we encouraged to test God to see if he'll do a miracle. In fact, you know what the Bible says? I was telling this to somebody a few days ago. A wicked generation seeks for signs and miracles. We don't have to be seeking those, but we're expecting when we need them, and God does them for us when we need them by his own purposes. So Jesus didn't jump off the temple. It wasn't that he didn't believe God could protect him. It was an issue of, of, of going on there, of his trusting God and not submitting to the will of Satan in some presumptuous way, believing in God. But, but protection is an important thing, and you know, we're all vulnerable, aren't we? We're all, we learned just the other day in, in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Esteban Santiago, the active shooter, who just gotten off of a plane in, 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 in the airport, uh, the baggage claim area. How many of us have never been in a, ba a baggage claim area? Most of us have been there, just getting your bags. Not, uh, five people died and eight were injured. And uh, when you see something like that, you just, it hits you in the gut. You know, we, we must remind ourselves of the millions and millions and millions of people who don't experience that in baggage claim areas. Or we'll get very discouraged. We'll get very discouraged. But we also have to have, remember when that does happen that somehow God is still in control. In fact, the scriptures say that, that, that God has numbered all of our days. It says that in the Psalms. That our days are numbered. God knows the number of our days. And again, last week we sang a song that kind of confesses that. With Jesus, I can take it. With him, I know I can stand. For no matter what may come my way, my life is in your hands. That song uh, 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 addresses this, this idea that we don't know what's behind the next corner. But God does. And he's our sovereign Lord. Why do we fail, though, to believe God's promises of protection, which we see every day in our own experience? Well, I think sometimes because we see the, the few exceptions that are there, the real exceptions, we see them as, God, as, as these exceptions as the rule. That's the problem. These exceptions are not the rule. They're, they're exceptions. Also, we, we assume that God's protection means that there'll be no pain. And that's, God's protection over us never means that there'll be no pain in our experience. Actually, the truth is that he comes, that he chooses to remove the protective shield around us to fulfill his own purposes in our lives. Wasn't that what he did for Job? When he tested Job? Remember, he never told Job why he went through that. God is often silent, isn't he? We have to acknowledge it. And we don't know why he chooses to make an exception by not protecting uh, his children, but we should not go around fearing danger or fearing man or fearing Satan or fearing circumstances. We must trust the mighty hand of God. In fact, Luke chapter 12, interestingly, says this. I, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than that they can do. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to pass into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's saying, be a God-fearer. Be one who fears God. Because God's the ultimate authority. 
And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus said that. Only with an eternal perspective uh, can we begin to understand that protection on this earth is never, ever absolutely promised to us. Never. It isn't. And yet, God has an eternal protection plan for us that is secure in the heavens for those who would trust Christ. Ultimately, that is what counts in thousands and thousands of years from now when we're with him. Man shall not live by bread alone. We, and and um, the word of God, well, the application here, the word of God is, is, is what we need, but the word of God must be rightly understood. Satan comes with a distorted view of these passages from Psalms and, and, and Deuteronomy. And, and we only will understand the distortions if we are in the word of God, if we know the word of God accurately. Be alert. Satan quoted the Bible, but he was wrong. Learn the word. Don't, don't be confused. Don't be duped. And, and the last portion of the passage, in, in, in Jesus' victory, we see a temptation to not honor the worship of God, to not honor the God who calls, who calls us to worship him, to worship him and to worship him alone, as it says in the text. You see, <coughs> Satan offers the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. Apparently, Satan had them to give. We see in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, three times, uh, he's called the prince of this world. In, in the Second Corinthians, Paul calls him the ruler of this world. There was, there's some authority that Satan has to give things to people, apparently. It's not, it never has ultimate authority. It's under the sovereign authority of God. Uh, one commentator, Tasker, says, to escape the way of the cross by being disobedient to the vocation of the suffering servant, despised and rejected by men, upon whom was to be laid the iniquity of us all, was Jesus' greatest and most persistent temptation. And according to Matthew's account, it was the climax of the wilderness experience. Jesus was, in effect, tempted to, to subscribe to the diabolical doctrine that the end justifies the means. So here's the point. The kingdoms of the world are going to become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ. And he's going to reign forever and ever. We sing that in the Messiah, you see in the book of Revelation. That's coming. But, to do, but before that came, there were some things that Jesus had to do. In fact, there was the thing that Jesus had to do. He had to go to the cross. He had to go to the cross. And had he not gone to the cross and received the kingdoms, there'd be a kingdom with no subjects. You and I wouldn't be there. Because it's a holy kingdom. And Satan knows that. Bypass the cross. Just become king. Do it, do it my way. In his classic book, C.S. Lewis has a discussion between uh, the demon and the demon's uh, mentor, the screw tape letters. Um, <clears throat> creatively, he shows the incredible heart of a person in this, in this quote that, who forsakes the things of this world. Now, again, Wormwood is a disciple of Satan, okay, trying to learn how to attack believers, attack uh, the people of Jesus. Here's a quote. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never in more danger than when a human... No longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, the enemy being God, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. Mm. Satan understands 
these things. He understands our frailty. He understands the temptations. He's watching us. And he watched Jesus. And, 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 and he says to, Jesus says to him, Be gone. Be gone, Satan. In verse 10. Reminds me of that classic lyric from the old Beatles song. Get back. Get back. I mean, you know that song. I know, I know you're a bunch of millennials here. You don't know. There's a great song the Beatles had. You've heard of the Beatles, right? I know you've heard of the Beatles. <laughs> Paul McCartney's lyrics were very controversial, even back then and today, because uh, much discussion among fans of the Beatles. <coughs> Jojo was a man who thought he was a loner, but he knew it wouldn't last. Jojo left his home in Tucson, Arizona for some California grass. I don't know what kind of grass he's talking about there. Get back, get back, get back to where you once belonged. Sweet Loretta Martin thought she was a woman, but she was another man. All the girls around her say she's got it coming, but she gets it while she can. There's a deleted verse found in earlier bootleg copies of Get Back, where uh, uh, the verse, he complains about Pakistanis in the Liverpool projects, housing projects. It's caused many to think that the song is a political statement against immigrants. Relevant today, isn't it? And then the sweet Loretta Martin verse makes people think that he's making a statement about transgender people. Relevant, isn't it? And still others think that Paul was simply telling John Lennon to dump his new mistress, Yoko Ono, and get back to focusing on the band. Maybe that's all it was. Whatever it was, if I were doing a, a movie soundtrack of this passage, I'd have that song underneath. <laughs> get back, Satan. Get back. Get back to where you once belong, to the pit, to the prison, to the place prepared for you and your, your followers. Get back, Satan. I was told between services that there actually has been a new movie, a recent movie a couple years ago about this passage. And I wonder if they use the Beatles song. I doubt it, actually. Get back, Satan. Worship God alone. Only serve him. So Satan leaves. Satan left. For a time, he would come back. Just as he had tried to trip up Jesus and trip up the plan of God, by killing all those young babies. Later he would come, again, to try to trip up Jesus. Jesus, when the disciples finally came to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to die for their sins during the first coming, you remember what happened? Peter said, no, Jesus, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to go to Jerusalem and reign. And do you remember what Jesus, how Jesus responded? Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus recognized it wasn't just Peter. That was the agenda. It is always the agenda of Satan to keep Jesus from the cross. From that, that, that's part of the story of the Old Testament. How can we break the line that Jesus won't die for sinners? And so Satan left for a time, but he was coming back. Verse 9, then we see that Satan had the authority to hand these things over to Jesus. He comes to us in the same way. He comes, and we have to ask ourselves, at what cost are we willing to pursue fame and fortune? At what cost are we willing to sell our soul to the devil? A couple quick reminders. The temptations we all face are about simply not making Christ our all in all. Putting things ahead of him. Bad things, sometimes good things. 
things that tempt us, seeking to find our identity in something other than being simply a child of the king. Finding my, when I look for my identity in being a parent or being a pastor or being a husband before my identity is being a child of God. That, that's the, that's, those are, there are strong temptations in our world to do that, to not see ourselves as God sees us first and foremost. Don't miss the main thing here. The passage is about Jesus' victory over the tempter. And we celebrate that victory. It's a real, t- real victory in space and in time. Jesus indeed is our model, but he's also our perfect savior. He's the son of God. And, and, and because of that, we are, we are the new Israel. We're the people who wrestle with God as God's people. He defeated Satan for you and for me. In Christ, we defeated Satan. This is the good news. This is what carries us when we're tempted, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We, am, we, we have victory over Satan through him. We can say, get back, Satan. I am no longer bound by things that used to weigh me down. I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I want to be. And I'm not what I'm going to be. Jesus has made me new and is day by day by day renewing me. I am victorious. I no longer have to obey an old master. I have a new master. The Apostle Paul said, Apostle John said, he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. Recently, the Star Wars phenomena has continued with the release of the Rogue One movie and the untimely death of Carrie Fisher has reminded us of, of that. Uh, the attraction of the Star Wars brand is, is pretty clear. They leave no doubt that as to who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. There's no doubt when you're in that movie, in the movie with a bunch of people like we, when we saw it a few weeks ago. There's good guys, there's bad guys, and everybody in the, in the house wants the good guys to win. That's one of the unique things about the Star Wars brand. It's pretty clear. It's a clear depiction of good and evil. And the audience continues to identify with the victorious warriors as they defeat this evil empire. See, the gospel is about our identification with a victorious warrior who defeated an evil empire. And this, this wilderness story is just the beginning of, the, of that battle. So like Paul, when we're going through battles, when we say, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? We can say, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Because Christ is victorious for me. And so, Luther wrote the words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. There's no one equal to Satan on earth right now. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of the armies, Lord of the heavens, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, he must win the battle. And though this world with devil's fills should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not, 
for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I'm going to give you three words to fell him. Get back, Satan. Get back, Satan. Get back, Satan. Let's pray. I want to thank you that in you we are victorious. We are more than victorious. We're more than conquerors because of what you had done for us. Thank you that the skirmishes that we face in our life would seem so, so, so overwhelming sometimes, and they are to us. They're just skirmishes. The main battle has been, been fought, and you have won that victory for us. How we thank you that we're in you safe and secure. Help us to, to endure, to be your people. Help us to be a, a kingdom of people who are, love you and, and, and spread your, your love, your grace to the ends of the earth. We'll give you thanks. Well, I pray for anyone who's here today who, who's in the middle of a battle is trying to fight it alone. May they know that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Spirit of God can be their constant companion to give them power and victory over the things that they wrestle with. Make this true in our lives, Lord, as we seek to, to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, we're going to have a benediction when we rise. And a reminder that we have uh, the intercessor's prayer. If you, if you want to pray with somebody, I'll be back there myself to just pray if, if you want to pray for God's work in your life at this time. May the God of grace, the God of peace, and the God of love be with you now forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you.